Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. It is time for a classic episode. This episode originally aired on April 2nd, 2014. It is called Biometrics Digital Fingerprinting. Enjoy. We thought, hey, we should talk about biometrics. And then we started looking into it and getting really excited. And then we realized, hey, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, right. Yeah. Biometrics, of course, being the uh, the measurable biological or behavioral characteristics used for, for any given individual. Yes, this is what how the FBI says this is what the biometrics are. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's one of those things where we knew it was a huge topic and we decided to narrow it down. So today we're specifically focusing on your fingerprints. Well, not your fingerprints. Well, no, I mean, I mean, everyone's fingerprints. You know, no, see the person sitting next to you. No, not that one. The other one, that person's fingerprints. That's that's the one we're concentrating on. So, yeah, uh, because everyone has has different fingerprints. I mean, like everyone. Right. And this is something that has been known for a while. But then 
forgotten and then rediscovered. So we're going to talk about that because it's kind of funny. So these days we think of biometrics as sort of those automated ways to verify your identity based on some sort of biological characteristic like, you know, the eye scan or the fingerprint scan or whatever, Vo- vocal scans as well, you know, like the, the voice imprint, uh, lots of different Hollywood versions of this. But, um, you know, again, going into that fingerprint approach, we thought that, uh, you know, we, we'd look at not just how we've defined it and how stuff works, but look at a whole history of fingerprinting. Uh, we're not the first podcast to do this, by the way. Uh, certainly not. Josh and Chuck of Stuff You Should Know did an episode on April 3rd, 2013 called How Fingerprinting Works. And they go pretty deeply into the history and say many pithy things. So uh, if you would like to check that episode out, you can go to StuffYouShouldKnow.com. Right. And just stick around because we're going to say some pithy things, too. We are going to cover some of the history. Uh, kind of a quick overview But first, I thought I would read a a couple of little excerpts from our article on how fingerprint scanners work, because there are a couple that I thought were really interesting. Uh, From HowStuffWorks.com. Yes. Neither of us actually wrote this. Nope, nope. I didn't write this one. Uh, This one says, uh, people have tiny ridges of skin on their fingers because this particular adaptation was extremely advantageous to the ancestors of the human species. The pattern of ridges and valleys on fingers make it easier for the hands to grip things in the same way a rubber tread pattern helps to a tire grip the road. The other function of fingerprints is a total coincidence. Like everything in the human body, these ridges form through a combination of genetic and environmental factors. The genetic code in DNA gives general orders on the way skin should form in the developing fetus, but the specific way it forms is a result of random events. The exact position of the fetus in the womb at a particular moment and the exact composition and density of surrounding amniotic fluid decides how every individual ridge will form. This, by the way, is how identical twins can have different fingerprints. Pretty cool. Because, you know, genetically, they're identical, but their fingerprints still, are different. Still different. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. So, looking at this history, uh, you might think, okay, I've heard about fingerprinting, particularly when it, uh, it applies to law enforcement. That's probably where a lot of people are familiar with it, besides the verification. Angle. Sure, sure. And uh, and a couple popular media pieces have talked recently about. Um, I mean, you, you get things like like Ripper Street or Sleepy Hollow uh, having characters going like this new fingerprinting thing in the amazing amazing age of victoria yeah um not not so much actually so fingerprints people well first of all people have been aware of them for ages because we're curious folks you know human beings we we we're very curious and narcissistic we like to learn stuff and we like to look at ourselves and uh how do i know that this dates back er ages and ages and ages ago because we have prehistoric depictions found in nova scotia uh, and it depicted a hand with ridge patterns on the skin. Now, that does not mean that the ancient Nova Scotians were familiar with the fact that all the fingerprints were uh, unique and therefore no two individuals had the same ones. But it at least showed that, you know, yeah, they noticed them. Uh, yeah, but the ancient Babylonians may have actually used fingerprints to differentiate people. Um, we've found fingerprints in clay to, to sign business transactions. And the ancient Chinese used inked fingerprints for both business purposes and child identification. And in the 1300s in Persia, official government documents often included fingerprints, 
probably to indicate they were authorized and official. Now, according to the U.S. Marshal's Office, which has an entire web page devoted to fingerprinting and the history of it, mm-hmm. uh, one government official in Persia at that time made the observation that no two fingerprints were alike, which obviously would be very important if you're making a document official or authorized. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until the 1880s, uh, that that amazing age of Victoria previously mentioned, uh, that we got some kind of official classification system. Right. It, it wasn't until the modern era that we started seeing it in uh, start. It, it wasn't even in wide use at the beginning. It was just kind of exploratory. Uh, Dr. Henry Falds back in 1880 proposed using fingerprints for identification as well as a means of classifying them. So he forwarded these ideas to a certain Charles Darwin, Mm -hmm. a very important historical figure in his own right. But Darwin at the time was toward the end of his life and felt that he did not have the necessary uh, time and energy to devote to this. Thought it was really interesting, however. So he forwarded the information along to a cousin of his named Francis Galton. So Fultz would write a scientific paper about his methods and actually identified a fingerprint. You know, ascertain the identity of the person who left that fingerprint on a bottle of alcohol. Shouldn't come as any surprise, I guess. <laughs> Booze brings us all together. It does. Uh, then in 1883, Mark Twain would, would use this, this new startling scientific information in a story. Yeah, it was in Life on the Mississippi. And in that, uh, one of the elements of that story is a murderer is identified through the use of fingerprints. And he would revisit the idea in a book called Puddinhead Wilson. Puddinhead Wilson. Yeah. Yes. So it's uh, interesting. Now, this was before anyone was actually using uh, fingerprints in any kind of criminal investigations on an official basis. It had not been it established. Was sci- it was science fiction, really, it at the time. It kind of was. It kind of was. So, so that was exciting. But, uh, but soon in 1888, uh, Sir Francis Galton, uh, re- remember the cousin to Charles Darwin, mm-hmm. who had received information about this uh, about 10 years previous, um, began his own study of fingerprints. Yep. He wrote a book in 1892 and put forth a formal classification system and identified the tiny characteristics used to differentiate fingerprints, which now we call Galton's details. Uh, he also observed that fingerprints don't change over the lifetime of a person. So the ones you have when you're a kid are the same ones you have when you're old. He uh, originally wanted to kind of link fingerprints to certain types of traits like intelligence or heredity. Which is so racist. Yeah, kind of essentially... I think this was almost in a, a an attempt, and I don't know enough about Galton to say this for sure, but it seems like an attempt to justify certain uh, societies' beliefs in certain people, that kind of thing. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily so racist, but um, but it, it, at it kind any of, rate, it kind of runs in that direction. Yeah, because I mean, the idea that you could identify a person's intelligence based on their fingerprints already seems a little sketchy, and in fact, he did. Uh, determined that there was no connection. There was no, there were no identifier marks in a person's fingerprints that would give you any clue as to that person's intelligence or a genetic background. However, he did figure out that there were a lot of differences and that people didn't, weren't likely to have the same fingerprints. Uh, yeah, unlikely in the order of one in 64 billion. That's pretty unlikely. So in 1891, we get the first use of fingerprints in a criminal investigation on an official level. Uh, Juan Vucetec, and, and I'm sure I butchered his last name, who was a police officer in Argentina, used them in a murder investigation. It was actually a really tragic case, but uh, the 
the the discovery meant that he was able to solve this mystery and prove that the person that was believed to have been the murderer was in fact not the killer. So uh, not only was it the first use, but it was a pretty dramatic example of it. Now, between we're going to skip to 1918, but between the late 19th century and the early 20th century, you started to see fingerprints get adopted into various legal uh, organizations all around the world. The United Kingdom and the United States were leading the way, but it was all over the place. So by 1918, you have Edmund Lacard, who says that you only need 12 points of similarity between an individual's fingerprint and a target fingerprint to serve as a positive identification. Now, you may have heard about those 12 points of singularity, that this is somehow like a, a legal thing, that if you were able to meet those 12 points of singularity, you have the legal basis to say this person did this did thing. Did that thing, right. Uh, not necessarily a legal definition at all. In fact, uh, countries have very, very different ways of saying whether or not a fingerprint is a valid match for another one. And some, like the United States, do not have a minimum number of uh, resemblances that need to be there in order for you to call it a match. Now, usually law enforcement agencies rely on experts who give their expert opinion and therefore are putting their own reputation on the line as to whether or not something matches. And of course, now, these days, we rely very heavily on Digital information, which with you know, uh, with very very complex and intelligent algorithms that will that will do some really interesting legwork. Yeah, and so with that, you know the the level of uh, confidence grows quite a bit. So uh, just so you know, that twelve points of similarity not necessarily a legal, legal standard. Yeah, mm-hmm. nineteen twenty four. That's when Congress enabled uh, had an act that established the new division for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, also known as the FBI. Uh, and this division was called the Identification Division. I bet you can guess what it did. So it became kind of a centralized fingerprint file for the entire country. So not it wasn't necessarily a standard procedure for every law enforcement agency out there to send a copy to the FBI. But that's kind of what started to happen so that uh, there could be this sort of uh, um, cooperation between different departments, which often wouldn't have any communication with each other. Uh, sure, sure. By 1946, the FBI would have processed more than 100 million fingerprint cards. Yeah, not just processed, but they did that by hand. <laughs> right, right. And it would be uh, 200 million by 1971. So 200 million physical cards with fingerprints on them. I mean, just imagine how many, like how, how much storage you need just for, I mean, it's 200 million. I can't even, I can't even imagine it. But by 1999, the FBI introduced the Integrated Automated Fingerprint Identification System, or IAFIS. So it's the largest fingerprint database in the world, and it's computer automated. It takes about 27 minutes for the system to comb through every single file in its database to find out if there is a potential match during a criminal investigation. It's different if it's a civil case. It's actually like more than an hour but for criminal investigation, uh, for all the criminal files that are stored in this database, 27 minutes from the time you actually input the uh, the suspect's fingerprint. I imagine that's a lot faster than whatever intern they sent down to the basement. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, because, I mean, you would have to narrow down the person quite a bit before you could ever start comparing against those cards. Use that information, sure. Right. Like, this is a, a man, so cut out all the women and then go. Like, there are 70 million of them down there. 
uh, yeah, that would be that would be a daunting task. So, in the digital age, we can actually analyze this stuff way better than we ever could. Like, you don't have to use the naked eye anymore and try and find those little ridges and stuff. You can actually rely very heavily upon computer systems. Mm-hmm. And once we started getting those computer systems uh, in place, they they pretty soon thereafter became um, uh, commercially available. Yeah, yeah, we had some fingerprint verification systems that have been around for a few decades. Now, on the consumer level, they've only been available fairly recently. And you might be thinking, oh, yeah, 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 the iPhone 5S, because it has that, that fingerprint scanner where you can use that to log into your phone. That's the first smartphone to ever use that, right? Nope. No, no. There's actually a mobile device. The first mobile device that I found was a one that dated from 2003. The H, and boy, the name of this is phenomenal. HP names their products in such catchy ways. It's the HP IPAQ, I-P-A-Q, PPC 5500 Pocket PC. Oh, yeah. It just rolls off the tongue. So sexy. Yeah, it really is. I mean, with a name like that, how could you resist? Nah, iPhone, phone. So at any rate, this was uh, the first mobile device to incorporate finger scanning technology. But it was also sort of the edge of, of a boom for the technology. Um, it, it was being extended for, for wide consumer use at the time. I yep. mean, you know, keyboards and mice had them, laptops had them. You could buy a USB scanner for multipurpose use and encrypt everything with your fingerprint. Right. You could end up uh, creating, for example, with a copier, you could end up telling people, all right, this group of folks are authorized to make copies. Anyone who's not on this list cannot make copies. And you would walk up to make copies, and if you weren't on that list, then I guess no fun Christmas party shenanigans for you. But but, uh, uh, but, but also opening this up to the consumer market meant that a lot of people started finding the flaws in the technology. Oh, yes. In December 15, 2005, Clarkson University researchers announced that they could fool 90% of the world's fingerprint scanners using an incredibly sophisticated, expensive substance. Play-Doh. Yeah, they could just go out to toy store and buy some Play-Doh and essentially make a copy of a fingerprint and put it on any optical scanner. And we'll talk about the optical scanners in a little bit. And it, it worked really well. So that gave people some pause and thought maybe we should come up with something besides optical scanners to... Because fingerprint identification is a great idea, but if it's if it's that easy to fool, we have to find a different way of measuring it. Mm-hmm. So then there was a totally different uh, expose on September 21st, 2006, when our beloved Mythbusters decided to uh, do a fingerprint scanner scam of their own. They decided to see if they could fool one. And this one was a little different. It wasn't just an optical scanner. It was supposed to also detect sweat from pores in the fingertips. Okay, so so you can't just use a lump of Play-Doh or, or a really picture. good photograph. Yeah, uh-huh. you'd have to have something that sweats. Has to has to otherwise it's never going to work. So what did they do? They made a latex copy of a fingerprint, and then they did a very sophisticated thing in order to simulate sweat. They licked it. Yeah, and it worked. So, you if you can't Play-Doh it, lick it. I guess is the moral of that story. I think I, I think that that's really what we all should learn from this today. Probably. So anyway, they're still seeing this kind of technology being rolled out, but it's not just in optical uh, scanners. And even optical scanners have gotten a lot better than they were back in 2005. We'll be right back with more digital fingerprinting after these short messages. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. 
Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I had just talked about optical scanners, and those are one of the ones that are the easiest to explain and uh, and fairly common even today. Uh, in fact, uh, not my work computer, but my home computer has, and my home laptop has a little optical scanner. So if I want to log in, I can just swipe my finger across it. So optical scanners use something that is found in digital cameras and camcorders called a charge-coupled device, or CCD. Now, essentially, that's a light sensor. It's got an array of things called photocytes. Now, that's light-sensitive diodes. And it's 
works pretty much the way you would imagine. So photons, those little particles of light, when they make a collision with these photocytes, it generates a little electrical signal. Mm-hmm. And uh, those can then be compiled and converted into a digital image. Mm-hmm. It's essentially the same process that digital cameras use to take pictures. Yep. And here's the thing, though. So if I put my finger on an optical scanner, I'm actually blocking light. And unless you happen to be E.T., the extraterrestrial, your finger probably isn't emitting light. So how the heck is it getting this picture? Well, it uses a flash. Yeah. Except in this case, a flash is probably like a single LED or for some scanners, maybe an array of LEDs, light emitting diodes, in other words. Mm -hmm. And so that provides the light that is necessary to take this image. And uh, then the CCD creates an image of your fingertip. However, it's a little funky. Uh, it's inverted, right? The, uh, the the dark areas are going to represent the ridges, the, the raised portions of your fingertip, mm-hmm. and the light areas are going to represent the valleys. Yeah, so it's kind of like looking at a negative, a photo negative. Uh, and it makes sense because stuff that's reflecting more light is going to create a, lo- a, a bigger electrical signal, thus creating that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the charge couple device is going to make that into a darker portion. The valleys, the light is not as much of it's going to reflect back. So you get a weaker electrical signal. That's why it gets lighter. Uh, so if you were to scan your finger and um, and it tells you that it's a good scan, because most of these devices also have some sort of fail safe in them that will alert you if there wasn't enough uh, enough. Uh, differentiation between uh, the dark and light parts. Uh, right, the, the same way that your that your camera um, sometimes will take a picture that's that's overdeveloped or underdeveloped. The same thing can happen here. Yeah. So if you wanted to, uh, like, if you most of the software has that error function mm-hmm. built into it, so it it can tell, when and, and it will happened. ask you to scan again. Right. So then you would scan again. So if it's the first time you're using it, then you would also end up creating a profile in some way. It might not be you. It might be an administrator, but something that links the fingerprint to who you are and what access you are supposed to have will happen. Then on subsequent uses, what will happen is that when you scan your finger, it'll go through its database of uh, of identities that have fingerprints attached to them, look for you. If you're there, then it will authorize you for whatever use you're allowed. So, for instance, on my home computer, uh, I've given myself very strict restrictions because I am not to be trusted uh, and so all I'm able to do is play a pirated copy of Flappy Bird. That's not true. <laughs> I don't have Flappy Bird. Uh, but at any rate, you know, that's the basic, you know, that's the basic procedure, right? And and so if your fingerprint is not found in that database, you get an error. So either you have to swipe it again or, or scan it again if it's not a swipe. You know, it all depends on what kind of scanner you're at. Uh, or you end up saying, ah, the jig is up. You got me. I'm, I don't really belong here. <laughs> and then you run away. Um, so that that's the basic thing. And, and what they're looking for is not the entire pattern of your fingertip. Uh, it's looking for, for specific minutia uh, about it, uh, uh, certain types of patterns. And it, and it depends on the software that the scanner is using. Um, it, it, it might be the places where the ridges converge um, or, or split apart at the end or um, any any other kind of detail that's going to be unique to you. Right. So in other words, uh, all it has to do is say, hey, there are these three points on this fingertip uh, that are unique, that that's all I'm concerned about. And if the fingerprint that's scanned has those three points, I know it's this person and they can be let through. 
uh, by concentrating on the minutia, then you really cut down on all the rest of the data that's necessary to have a verification. Uh, right. You can kind of throw everything else out and concentrate on that. And right. Uh, and, and they're pretty good. Like we said, though, they can sometimes be fooled by a really high quality picture of yeah. a fingerprint. Right. So what if you instead of looking at a picture, you were to measure the fingerprint in some other way, uh, such as capacitance? Uh, right, because capacitance touch screens are totally a thing. Yeah, so it's very similar to what a, a, a regular capacitance touch screen is. So, you know, there are different ways of doing touch screens as well. There's some where you have to use pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, the benefit of that is you could be wearing gloves and still work a pressure version. Uh, the downside is that when people are expected to apply pressure to delicate material, they sometimes destroy it completely. Right, or it'll at least... <laughs> decrease the lifespan of that object by quite a bit. Capacitance, however, uses uh, weak electric fields. So when you make contact with a screen, a touchscreen that's using capacitance, uh, see, you're a conductor. I don't mean that you conduct trains, nor do I mean that you... Maybe you do. Maybe you do. Maybe you do. Maybe you conduct orchestras. Maybe you conduct orchestras on a train. I don't know, but that's not what I'm talking about. If you do, call us, because that sounds fascinating. That would be kind of cool, actually. But no, I'm talking about electrical conductivity. Mm -hmm. So we can conduct electricity. It's not great for us to have a lot of it, but... Tiny amounts don't hurt us. Uh, sure. And as it turns out, the ridges and valleys on your fingers conduct slightly different amounts of electricity. This blows my mind. I mean, to think that the raised parts of your fingerprint and the valleys of your fingerprint are distinct enough to create a measurable difference in capacitance. It, you know, it's something I never would have imagined. Uh, and it's really a sensor issue here. I mean, the fact that we can create these uh, these cells, these capacitor plate cells that mm-hmm. are sensitive enough to tell that yeah, technology. So, so what's happening is when you put your finger down on one of these capacitance scanners, uh, you are actually uh, you're, you're acting as a capacitance plate, right? Your fingertip is acting as one and you already have other ones inside the scanner itself. And it'll end up creating voltages and there will be difference differences in those voltages, the differences between the ridges and the valleys. Based on how far away they are from the from the cells. Yeah, so if it's a valley, it's going to be lower capacitance because the distance is greater. Capacitance mm-hmm. is very dependent upon distance. Mm-hmm. So if you move two capacitance plates far enough apart, they will not be they will not work together. We've got a little bit more to say about biometrics, but first let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. 
But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's amazing that the valleys, just by being that much further away, will create a different voltage than the ridges. And then having a whole uh, a whole set of these cells set up next to one another, um, it, it allows the scanner to, to sort of make a, a digital picture of your fingerprint, but just using electricity rather than light. The, the data from each one is, again, compiled and then converted into an image of sorts. Yeah, yeah. You can think of it as like a, an image made with electricity. And this is the sort of scanner that the iPhone 5S uses. So it's not an optical scanner. One of the big benefits of this technology is that it's easier to make it really compact and miniaturized, which is why you could find it in things like handheld electronics. Uh, right, sure. Um However, this technology can also be fooled um, sometimes by by a mold of a finger um, or if someone has gone and calibrated the scanner to look for things like like heat or a pulse. Um, you can you can use one of those movie tricks uh, like a gelatin or silicone mold of a finger um, pasted onto a different a different finger. finger. Yeah. My favorite version of getting past a, um, a capacitance or an optical scanner is to use the finger that's been removed from the person who had the authorization. Yeah. Yeah. Snipping the that's, finger that's, off. That's your favorite? That's my favorite. Out in the field? That's what you like you doing? You know, we had this discussion about the born identity before we came into the podcast. This is totally true. Uh, I don't like to discuss my actual field operative kind of mentality and strategies, but yes, I do love doing that. So thermal scanners. 
Well, this one's a little different because it's a, it's a heat scanner. And again, it's one of those ideas where it measures the differences in heat between ridges and valleys. Sure. Once again, you're going to get a slightly higher temperature from the ridges than you do with the valleys. The valleys are essentially pockets of air. Uh, there's some downsides with this one. One of the problems with thermal scanners is that if you, if it takes too long to do the scan, the temperature differences are going to equalize across the, the plate ridges. Yeah. and uh, wind up you get like erasing a, it as yeah, you it's just, going. You just get a blank fingerprint, mm-hmm. like a big blank fingerprint. Not useful. This next one is super cool. It's ultrasonic, ultrasonic sensors. So uh, right, yeah, uh, we did a whole episode about ultrasound uh, called "How Ultrasound Works." Crazily enough, that published on January thirteenth, twenty fourteen. If you would like to hear all about how this technology works, but um, but it's essentially echolocation. Yeah, you're sending out sound signals, and then you're waiting for them to bounce back, and by measuring the amount of time it took to go out and come back, you get an idea of how far away something is. Well, that works, you know, in lots of different ways, including being able to tell a fingerprint, being able to read a fingerprint. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it can go even deeper than that. Exactly. It can go into tissue. So if you wanted, you could create an ultrasonic fingerprint scanner that scanned not just the fingerprint itself, but the underlying veins that are in your finger, which also are going to be unique to you. So uh, that's a lot harder to fake than a fingerprint. Like, you're not going to get a really high-resolution image of veins and then create a fake finger easily. It would be really difficult. I mean, but you could use um, your favorite application, which is uh, removing someone's finger and using that, right? Unless you had also built into the software to detect living tissue. Because ah, it, to, to see if blood is moving through right. the, the veins or if, the vessels. If it's not detecting blood, it's going to say, y'all, this is messed up. <laughs> You need to send someone down right now to the fingerprint scanner. Things that are bad are happening. That's exactly the voice it uses, too. I, I assumed. I run into it in the field all the time. So, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, that's we're making light of it because to be serious about it is so squicky. And <laughs> terrifying. But at yeah. any rate, it, it does mean that you can build those sort of parameters in. So it's not just looking at the fingerprint and the, the veins underneath, but also to make sure it is truly a valid uh, entry so that they don't, you know, you don't end up uh, compromising security. Uh, and there, there's also, I wanted to mention very briefly, the difference between those static uh, fingerprint scanners, especially the optical ones where you just hold your finger down and you wait for it. It's kind of like a copier. Uh, right, right. And the swipe style that you were talking about having on your home laptop. Exactly. So if you've ever had a laptop or any other device that has like a narrow window and you're supposed to swipe your finger across that window... Uh, the reason for that is that it's actually taking an, a series of, of quote-unquote images of your finger. Uh, however, the implementation is actually being used. It's it's doing that in a, a quick series. Machines are really fast, so they can do this without any real problem. Uh-huh. They're looking for those minutiae that we talked about before. And, but, and they're able to uh, to use software to compile them. But, you know, it's, it's nifty having the smaller form factor because, like we said, uh, it, then you can miniaturize, you can put them in something like a cell phone right. and uh, also make them cheaper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You've got this little window and your finger moves past the window instead of the window having to be big enough to fit your, your whole fingers. Finger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's really uh, a, an interesting development and uh, pretty cool. Also, we can mention that Biometric systems, many of them, not necessarily all of them, but many of them end up translating your fingerprint into an algorithm that 
or an algorithm rather does the translating that turns it into a bunch of ones and zeros. Uh, right, right. A digitization, um, sometimes called a, a hash. It's like a personal code, like a really long pin. Yeah. So in this case, what you would say is that it's not storing an image of your fingerprint. It's not like if you were to somehow hack into the computer, you would suddenly see a on your screen a representation of your fingerprint. It would just mean that it would take the the pattern of ridges and valleys and all the minutia convert that into this this hash this this long string of ones and zeros and the next time you scan it if the if a same hash comes up then it is a match and it says all right identification has been verified mm-hmm. but it's not actually like a, an actual real image of your fingerprint and the reason why a lot of these companies try to talk about you know this as as a big selling point is that it doesn't allow you to recreate a person's fingerprint if you were to get hold of those hashes. So it's not like you would say, oh, if I just put this through an image program, I suddenly get a picture of that fingerprint. You would just yeah, yeah. gibberish. Uh, that's that's the way I think that the iPhone 5S and the Galaxy something something. Yeah, uh, the, the latest Samsung the, phone. The, yeah. the, the latest Samsung uh, incorporates it. And um, uh, PayPal these days even has um, fingerprint signatures on their app. And any any device that allows you to in to scan in your fingerprint will yeah let I, you pay for stuff on paypal with I'm, that signature i'm sure we're going to see a lot of that kind of stuff uh incorporated with things like the nfc technology or even right. the the low bluetooth energy uh low energy bluetooth rather i should say uh implementations where your fingerprint instead of having to put in a pen you just swipe your finger yeah or, so, or you know i don't know i i kind of hope that it's an additional safety feature not a standalone safety feature because um you know, unlike a password or a pin, you can't just change your fingerprint if it gets stolen. And this hash issue adds security to to the whole thing. It, it's harder to, but I'm sure that someone, if they really wanted to, could could decode a hash and figure out what that scan looks like. Yeah, maybe. I mean, they would have to have a lot of information. But it is it is important to say that there is no security feature out there that's going to be 100 percent. Oh, of course. Right. Right. There's nothing out there. So having it as an additional tool, I agree, Lauren, that's that's the best way of looking at it. I think any time we decide that we're going to rely on a specific uh, implementation and that's it and we're done, we're good, then we're pretty much dooming ourselves to getting hacked in some way down the line. And that wraps up this classic episode about biometrics. It's still a very, very big topic. Uh, arguably an even bigger topic today than it was back in 2014. Very complicated. There's so many things to take into consideration from security and privacy issues to, you know, the the problems with authentication in some cases, uh, ways to work around biometrics. Uh, there's a lot going on there. I will likely do more episodes kind of diving into not just the tech, but the ethics behind biometrics. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes, let me know. The best way to do that is over on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. TechStuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. 
You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 